0: Welcome to the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. We've got Joe with us today, and we are back here. Uh, it is September, Joe. The kids are back into school. We have a new season of the Baseball America College Podcast, and I guess you guys heard some some new some new sounds before you start hearing my familiar voice. And Joe, can you can you explain uh, the, our new intro music?
1: Yeah, it's pretty pretty cool deal. I. Um reached out to a musician friend of mine and he was able to put that together for us uh kind of a little jazzed up version of of take me out to the ball game but uh his name and i I kid you not is bruce Bonebreak. uh that is his birth name i did not believe him he provided the documentation to prove that was the case but uh but yeah really talented musician plays all kinds of, of instruments and uh so if you if you happen to live in the st louis area he and he's in about a million bands but uh ranging from you know harder stuff close to metal to pop punk he was in a country band for a while but so if you're in the st louis area he and his bands play all around their various venues in st louis and over on the illinois side of the river um so check him out if you have an opportunity but yeah really thankful for uh him doing that for us because i think it uh it's kind of a cool so version Joe, of it
0: can you um, sure. put boost bruce, bruce Bonebreak? uh i mean outstanding name and then number one on the Baseball America college baseball names list this last season was Itchy Burtz, number two, Zacharias Raspberry, number three, Zebulon Vermilion, number four, Bear Bellamy. Does Bruce Bonebreak break into that, that foursome were he a college baseball player?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think he's definitely in that top top four or five. Um, I don't think he usurps Itchy Burtz just because that's just a – there's a lot of things going in Itchy Burtz's name that, that I think puts him in the top spot. It's First of all, having an, the first name Itchy, um, or that being his the name he goes by, is great. Also, it's short. I feel like there's something funnier sometimes about the, the short, succinct names. Um, that's one of the reasons I really like Cross Factor from Oklahoma State, um, just because it's short, it's succinct. Um, the only thing that would make itchy Burtz better is if his name was itchy Burns, because those would be two sensations you can feel on your skin, you know, itching and burning. Um, that would make it a little bit better. I think that's the only thing that could be improved upon with his name. But yeah, I think Bruce's name probably cracks that top five. I don't know. I don't know that I like it more than raspberry, but maybe more than Zeb Vermillion. Um, I know that's, that's lofty praise, but, um, I think it's a great name, especially for what he does. Like he's a musician, Bruce Bonebreak. Um, that's just a guy who just plays guitar in a rock band, for sure. Yeah, that is that so, is yeah, absolutely I I, outstanding, I I
0: and we uh, we appreciate it. It's uh, it's a fun way to uh, to kick this podcast off before it goes completely off the rails. And um, you know, so we're, we're back now. Uh, we we took the summer off. The last time Joe and I recorded, uh, it was July. Uh, the season had had just been wrapping up. We kind of wrapped up some stuff from Omaha and left it a little bit open about when we would be back. Well, the answer is the start of September. Uh, A lot has happened since then. We're not going to attempt to cover all of it. It's just not possible. A lot of it, though, if you're uh, curious, still has been covered over at baseballamerica.com. So make sure to check anything out there that you may have missed. Uh, But we have had. A couple of significant things in the last week here, as September has begun, um, you know, and, and and the college, you know, new year has, has really come about, uh, and, and we want to get into those. One of those is our top 50 college draft prospects ranking. Uh, that uh, has been updated here at the start of September to reflect the you know changes from the summer, the the developments, the improvements. Uh, the kids went through while they were playing summer ball. And then also we had our top 25 recruiting class rankings uh, come out last week as well. So we'll get into those uh, in a second. First, though, I want to talk about Head of the Class, which is a new book that we are putting out here at Baseball America this year. It's a college, it's a book about the last 40 years of college baseball, looking back at the great players, the great teams, over the the last four decades, and I think that you know if you're listening to this podcast, you're a college baseball fan, and, and I think that you will probably find, uh, you know, I, I think it'll be a lot of fun to take that trip down memory lane uh, through these last four decades. You know, we're talking about uh, you know some of the the great teams like uh, that that LSU had in the '90s under Skip Bertman, the the uh, rise of um, uh, a, a program like Wichita State under Gene Stevenson, and uh, of course, so many, so many great teams from Fullerton and Miami, and that great 03 Rice team, and then more recently, you know, of course, the, the Vanderbilts, the Floridas, you know, that everything like that is going to be in, compressed into this book. Um, we're going to have a lot of historical stuff. We're going to have some newer stuff uh, in terms of kind of contextualizing the decades. Uh, looking back at at each one of these years. So if you are interested in that book, you can pre-order online at at baseballamerica.com, at store.baseballamerica.com specifically. Uh, And of course, pre-ordering is is very helpful. If you're interested, check that out over at store.baseballamerica.com. Now, Joe, let's get back to... Some of these uh, these rankings here that I mentioned. And let's start with the the top 50 college draft prospects. Uh, the list is again, as it was at the start of the summer, led by Spencer Torkelson. Um, but we've had uh, we've had some shakeups. And you know, I, I, if you look at the uh, high school list, and, and Carlos had a podcast about that, so you, you guys may have listened about that. You know, there there were some. Guys at the top on that high school list, that took some significant falls. That didn't really happen on the college side. What we had instead was some guys making some significant jumps. I'm talking about Nick Gonzalez, uh, New Mexico State second baseman, Cape Cod MVP, number one prospect on Cape Cod. Carmen Maladzinski, South Carolina ace, uh, who missed pretty much the whole spring with a broken foot and then uh, established himself as the best pitcher on the Cape. You know, those are two guys that that really jumped up and. And when you look at Nick Gonzalez, what he did this summer, Joe, I mean, just how impressive was that? I mean, that's a guy that was an All-American. He had a fantastic spring. He led the country in hitting. But I don't know, for me personally, there was some, yeah, but it's altitude. Yeah, but it's New Mexico State. I understood he was good. I think when he did what he did on the Cape, uh, that really made me understand exactly how good he was.
1: Yeah, 100%. I mean, what you say there is kind of echoes my feelings on it. And as someone like myself, who has an affinity for the smaller conferences, the smaller programs, I was heartened to see what Nick Gonzalez did this summer. Um, to kind of, there, There's a proof of concept there that this is not just a guy who plays at altitude. This is not just a guy who has feasted on uh, whack pitching. This is a guy who um, you know, has a chance to be a big leader, has a chance to be a, a big league contributor. Um, and and I think they' there he needed that kind of summer to kind of prove, prove that he was always going to get a shot. I mean, what what he's done was was enough to to get him a shot. But I think now it's it's put him in a different stratosphere in terms of being taken, um, you know, seriously as a prospect. So you know, you compare that to some other guys, and, and I don't, don't want to necessarily blow up anybody's spot, but there have been other guys who have come along who put up big numbers in places um, where you expect to have big numbers put up, whether that's on the West Coast or whether that's in a league like the OVC where where numbers just are um, eye-popping year after year. Um, you know, Nick Gonzalez this summer was able to kind of take himself out of that category and put himself in a totally different category. Now he's kind of a transcendent uh, prospect, um, not only for the New Mexico State program, but also in the WAC. I mean, he's going to be a guy who's g- going to bring a lot of heat out to a lot of places where there hasn't always been a lot of scouting heat. Um, so that's kind of big, not only for him, but, also, you know, that's also a good opportunity for his teammates and other players that play um, in his conference. So, um, you know, I enjoyed seeing him um, high up on that list for those reasons. Um, you mentioned Carmen Majinski and he's a guy who, there were a lot of reasons why, you know, South Carolina season in 2019 didn't, didn't go the way uh, they, they had hoped it would. But a big one was Majinski going down so early because you, you, you could kind of, I think I even mentioned this early on in the season that you could kind of squint pretty hard. And, you know, if Carmen Majinski's is a true Friday guy, and, you know, some of their offensive players took a step forward. You could kind of squint hard enough and see how South Carolina might be able to at least keep themselves in a regional discussion. Um, and when, when when Majinski goes down, though, that kind of slides everybody down. And by the end of the season, it was at a point where they were really kind of patching things together on the pitching staff and, and trying to, you know, string good innings together. And, and so, again, him being healthy and, and, and being a part of being a part of that rotation, I don't know that it fundamentally changes the result of South Carolina's season. It certainly makes them better. Um, I don't know if it puts them in a regional, uh, but certainly that was just kind of a big blow for them early on they were never able to recover from. So I think as if you're a South Carolina fan, I think you have to look at it as, you know, hi, him being healthy and showing what he showed this summer, I think, is um, goes a I long way. the other thing I wanted to, to
0: note from, from that list is that, um, you know, it's – It started well for Arizona State uh, at the beginning of the summer. Uh, You know, Torkelson was number one, and Alika Williams was on there at 21. Uh, It's only gotten better, though. Uh, Alika Williams is now up to 17. I absolutely love watching him play. He had a really good summer with Team USA. Uh, I think he's pretty clearly the best defensive shortstop in the nation. And, um, you know, Nick Lofton looked really good. Uh, you know, kind of as his understudy, but but Olika, um, you know, looks uh, l- looks very much the part there. There at shortstop. Not that that's news to anyone at Arizona State, but um, you know, good uh, confirmation that, that he, you know he continued to do it against uh, the competition. You the the national team was facing this summer, but then Gage Workman is now on here after a, a nice summer. Uh, playing shortstop on the Cape. You know, he's, uh, he's going to go back to the hot corner for, for the Sun Devils, but he's, um, he's really uh, starting to, to put things together as well. And then RJ Dabovich uh, came on very strong on the Cape. It was, I, I think that what happened this summer was kind of what Arizona State was hoping would happen this spring. He was just a sophomore when he transferred in uh, from junior college sometimes it takes those guys a little bit of time, and he was banged up as well a little bit this spring, so it seems like he's started to, to really get strained out, and, and um, you know, if he can be that guy, uh, you know, they need someone in that rotation, because, of course, Alec Marsh went in the draft, and, um, you know, that leaves a hole on Friday nights, and uh, you know, so Boyd Vanderkoy uh, could need some help in, in that rotation, wherever it's going to come from. Uh, and, and Dabovich certainly looks like he's capable of, of providing that or maybe even being the lead lead guy. Uh, you know, we'll see how that all shakes out. But, uh, you know, so I think that Arizona State had a really nice summer. Um, you know, this is something that we uh, or a year that I think we had thought Arizona State was was building to. Uh, and, and now it's really starting to get here. So uh, I, I was impressed with their overall summer, uh, and, and I mean, just from what you see looking at Arizona State right now, uh, it, it does seem like this is that the pieces are all starting to come together for them to take another step.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, it's one of the, the the teams I'm most excited to see in 2020, just because I think they've got that the opportunity to do something that hasn't been done in Tempe in, in a while and, and and get back to Omaha. And you know, Jason Kelly's a big part of that too. Obviously, that's that's separate from the the talk of the prospects and the players. But you know, he's coming on as pitching coach, and he's widely considered to be one of the best pitching minds, not just on the West Coast but in the entire country. And so, you take some of these raw materials, and, and the talent on the pitching staff hasn't really necessarily been the question it's just kind of finding roles and getting guys to live up to their potential and the depth could be improved for sure but there there's talent there and rj david which is a guy you mentioned right off the bat is, is kind of the, the, the lead of that and so if jason kelly can kind of come in and have an impact on just the existing pieces they have i think it could go a long way towards shoring up the pitching which was really kind of the issue for them last year Let, let's be honest they could mash and they're still going to mash uh, come twenty twenty. So yeah, I'm I'm really excited to see them. It's kind of a similar story for Miami for me. That's one of the other teams I look at. You know, they've got guys littered on this list. Uh, too. you know, Freddie Zamora. Uh, speaking of you know defensive shortstops, Freddie Zamora's on the list. A couple pitchers in Chris McMahon and Slate Ciccone. Um, that's a team that kind of feels like they're on a similar trajectory. I think at this point, I think I would probably like Arizona State's high end talent and potential there, but I think they're kind of on a similar pace in terms of historical power that. You know, hit on a little bit of hard times there, missed regionals a couple seasons, but now kind of seem like they're back on the right track, and and maybe 2020 is a little bit of a of a breakthrough season because I, I really like Miami's talent. They've been collecting impressive talent for several years now, and we're just kind of waiting for it all come together. Last year, it felt like. It was a near miss on what could have been a really good team. There were some injury issues in the pitching staff late in the year that, that kind of led to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's interesting the they're going about it
0: a little bit differently. Arizona State very much on the the slugging side, and Miami is doing it a little more on the pitching side. When when you look at the wealth of arms they have going into next year, it's uh, it's very solid, and um, you know potentially. Uh, the best in the ACC without fully breaking it down. I mean, I would guess that Louisville has something to say about that with Detmers and, and Miller at the, you know, one-two. But uh, what Miami can do on the mound has a chance to be pretty special. And uh, maybe this is just because I'm have this little bit of the historical bent right now because I've been looking at this head of the class stuff. But I don't know. Is it is it weird to you, Joe, that? Miami has these like two all-time great coaches that everyone can immediately associate with the program in Fraser and Morris and then ASU doesn't really have that I mean Pat Murphy was there for a long time maybe because he didn't win at the end like that maybe that, that makes him a little bit different but like it, what, what do you make of of this thing that I'm sprinting on you right now
1: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. you bring. I hadn't really ever considered it, to be honest with you. But if you would have told me, so if we'd have played this game before, if, if you'd have said, you know, hey, Joe, who, what are the coaches you assist, associate with Miami baseball? You know, you would have come up Ron Frazier and, and Jim Morris, bang, bang. If you'd have said Arizona State, I would have given you pretty quickly Pat Murphy, but it would have taken me a second to come up with Brock. But then you've got kind of this period of, of uh, transitional years with Tim Esme where they were still getting to regionals, um, you know, but they moved on from him. And you've got Tracy Smith that has some fits and starts at the beginning of his tenure but seems on track now. And I think some of it's just circumstantial, um, you know, where, you know, they, they parted ways with Pat Murphy. And, and I think you're right that um, – You know, there were some teams, I think, towards the end of Murphy's tenure that I think maybe there were some expectations on that this was going to be a national title winner for Arizona State uh, that fell short of those expectations. I mean, the the talent they had on display from, I don't know, like 05 to 10 or to 11 uh, was just incredible, absolutely incredible. Some of the most talented teams I've seen in person. Um, And they they just were never quite able to get over that hump. So I think maybe some of that's coloring it. But then also the way he left, I mean, it was kind of a, a contentious end to Pat Murphy's Tenure in Tempe, and so perhaps that has something to do with it too. Whereas I think at, at Miami, um, there's not really those types of conflicted feelings about Frazier and Morris. And I think maybe had the end of Morris's tenure gone a little bit differently, and by that I mean, of course, his last couple of years they missed regionals, but you know the couple of years before that they got to Omaha back to back years. So I think there was still a little bit of feel good from that um, to, to, for him to live off of there. So maybe it's that there's not really complicated feelings about those Miami coaches. Whereas with Arizona state, there are some complicated feelings with Murph in particular. And then, you know, what do you do with Esme who was an assistant for Murph and then got to regionals, but those teams weren't as talented. I just, I think there's maybe just some kind of like muddying of the waters with the legacies of those coaches. And, and perhaps that's, that's why we are where we are with them. Cause I'm, I'm with you. I mean, yeah, I, those, I think that's uh, interesting. Those two programs
0: uh, and you can throw George into this as well as, um, you know, big-time powers that had fallen on some lean times and are now going to enter 2019 with big expectations, Georgia with the biggest of the, the group, I would think. But, um, you yeah, know, all three are going to be looking to make some pretty significant noise come next June. But we will have plenty of time to discuss uh, that at, over the next several months. Um, did want to touch on the recruiting rankings where Vanderbilt, again, number one, Sixth time uh, Vanderbilt has had the number one recruiting class in the country. That is a record. Um, this class is headlined by Jack Leiter. That is Al Leiter's son. You might remember him from pitching in the big leagues. Um, his uh, Jack Leiter is uh, is pretty advanced to himself. Uh, he should be able to, to, to come in and have a, a, an impact right away. And you know everyone saw what Kumar Rocker did. And so there's going to be a lot of expectation that Lighter does that. Um, that's pretty lofty. But at the same time, uh, you know, he is expected to uh, you know, be an instant impact freshman that you know, even if he doesn't step into the rotation. One of the things we talked about with Rocker, how rare it was that a Vanderbilt pitcher step into the rotation like that um, you know, from opening weekend on, really. Um, how rare that was in Nashville. So we'll see if Lighter can do that. Uh, but if he can't, they'll find a, a, a use for him, no doubt. And, and I'm sure he'll he'll pitch important innings for Vanderbilt. But it's a it's a deep class overall. They have uh, I think it's they have nine players from the BA 500, um, you know, which of course includes all draft eligible players from last year. So nine of those. Those kids are, are now at Vanderbilt as freshmen, and you know they're uh, they're they're going to make an impact. Uh, you know we'll see which ones make the instant impact. Um, you know that we've seen from some Vanderbilt freshmen in the past, but uh, there's no doubt this this is a highly highly talented class. Number two uh, was Ole Miss, and Ole Miss is a really fun class I think because it is, it's very athletic in part because there are two football players in it. Jerry and Ealy and John Reese Plumley are both playing for the Rebels this fall. Ealy is, in addition to being one of the top you know, baseball freshmen in the country, he could be one of the top football freshmen uh, on a talent basis. The first two games haven't been super impressive for him. Uh, he's a running back and but he was one of the highest rated running backs in the country in, uh, in the class of 2019. He has said a lot though that he kind of prefers playing baseball. Uh, so we'll see where that all goes for Ole Miss. Uh, he's very, I don't wanna say raw on the baseball field. He can do a lot of things but there is certainly some rawness to the game. Uh, he's gonna to have to figure out uh, some hit ability things and you know does that so what does that mean for him this spring especially when he hasn't had a fall ball what, what does that look like no one really knows uh but he'll uh, he'll certainly be given a chance to to go out and help the rebs on the diamond and then plumley is a quarterback um, who is rated better as a quarterback than as a, a baseball player but is still a very well-regarded baseball player uh so that gives the almost class a Little wild cardness to it, uh, but they have. I mean, you look at, um, you know, infielder Connor Walsh and catcher Hayden Dunhurst, and they have some, some premium impact players even uh, away from, from the, the Elys and the Plumleys. So that, that's an exciting group. Florida with another top five class led by left hander Hunter Barco, who um, was the, the second highest ranked player behind Leiter to make it to campus. Uh, again that's another high impact arm for Florida we know what Kevin O'Sullivan can do with high impact arms so I'm excited about that number four TCU number five UCLA kind of got there in two different ways TCU has a bigger group has some JC guys in there Uh, they're really trying to recover after the draft hit a couple classes in a row for them so they're they're trying to inject some talent right away there. I, I think there's talent all over the field for the Frogs on this, this group, um, but the arms are really exciting and they, they kind of need those, especially with Nick Lodolo, uh and Brandon Williamson moving on to pro ball. Uh, TCU has, has some holes on the uh, pitching staff and, and I think that this group coming in, uh, Kirk Sarloos can, can do some good work with them and uh, we'll, we'll see where they go from there and then that UCLA class, it's a small group. It's only nine players in it, but they all have some pretty significant upsides. Some, a lot of them have a really good athleticism, uh, some projection. And uh, the group looks pretty good now, but I feel like three years from now it might look amazing as these kids continue to develop and grow in John Savage's program. I, I think that uh, the Bruins have some, some really good players there. Michael Curial the highest-ranked player. Um, Jared Karros is the son of Eric Karros of UCLA and Dodger Great um, Jared is a, is a pitcher unlike his father and he's ultra projectable he's like 6'6 uh, but, but he knows how to pitch already um, which kind of fits the John Savage mold very well very excited to see uh, where he goes and then I really like Emmanuel Dean he's a, he's a really toolsy outfielder and um, so many people I talk to uh, really like catcher Darius Perry. He's got uh, some, some big tools as well. So some exciting pieces to build around there. I would encourage you to check out the rest of the top 25 online. I broke down every class in the top 25 uh, in somewhat excruciating detail. Uh, so BA subscribers uh, can find out all about the, these new classes, especially your favorite teams. You can really uh, dig into those. Joe, just from what you looked at there, um, what kind of jumped out from the, the recruiting top 25 to you?
1: Well, first of all, what jumped out was the uh, the work <laughs> that you put into those capsules. I mean, because it really is pretty exhaustive. And so those were a great tool for me. Um, you know, you're you know a little more in tune with, with these players and have followed them a little more closely. So it was kind of nice for me, especially... Some, some players, I knew their names. Some are, some are very famous, and I know them. Some, I knew their names and, and weren't sure what their profile was. And there were some names, of course, that I, that I didn't know. So I found it really helpful just for me. But it's um, I, I can imagine those were those are pretty work-intensive. So uh, kudos to you, sir. Um, because I'm me, part of what interested me was I, I uh, looked at the list and scrolled to the bottom to kind of see like, who – because it's interesting to me. I mean, you look at the top 10, 15, and you've got a lot of usual suspects there, right? Right. Um, But it's interesting to me who kind of cracks into that top 25. And and I understand and I know from how difficult you mentioned this process was that there is some hair splitting going on. I imagine it's tougher at the back end um, to kind of split those hairs. Uh, So with that in mind, but it is kind of interesting to see who kind of cracks these things, because I think it can kind of give you a little bit of a window into who's maybe on the rise, you know, who to maybe look out for not maybe necessarily in 2020 if it's a program truly on the rise, but maybe in 21 or 22. And there were a couple things. I think one, I think BYU will jump I out assure you at people, that the casual observers, but I think... Make
0: sure that BYU is number 25. <laughs> it's the first time the Cougars have ever had a, a top 25 recruiting class in the 20 years we've done this. And yes, that uh, that was noted.
1: <laughs> but I, I will say that I'm not... You know, I guess I, I mean I'm in a position where I follow this more closely, but it doesn't surprise me a ton just because like they've ha- they've got talent. They've been a talented program under Littlewood. Mike Littlewood's doing a really nice job there. Um, they've had a couple tough breaks with you know they they maybe with a one or two breaks in a couple different seasons have maybe twice as many regional appearances as they have under Littlewood or three times or you know whatever it is. A, a couple more, I guess, is, is my point. Um, you know, last year they were you know. If, if their schedule had broken in such a way where they had a couple more top 50 wins, they, they very well might get in last year. I mean, that team was good enough. And so, so I'm not surprised from that standpoint. Um, what is interesting about their recruiting classes though, is that because of the Mormon mission situation, like these are kids that might, we still might see in college baseball in like 2025. So that's kind of incredible when you consider four years plus two years on a mission, Um, you know, this is, these are kids that names we may be seeing for, for a long, long time. And and that also leads to some uncertainty. Like you don't know on one hand, a top 25 recruiting class, you know, you might look at it and say, okay, well, BYU could be in a position to be a power, you know, in their, in their world, um, and, and, and maybe run off a, a, a string of regionals here. But, um, so those are all things that, that BYU has to deal with that other programs, um, in this position don't it, it have is to be that's always and, um, something interesting, you know, there's interesting to watch.
0: So much changes with that. You hear guys say like oh, I'll go to school for a year and then I'll go on a mission and then that 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 plan changes. And um you know I, I feel like this group from from what I could tell I think the top end guys aren't on that track, um, but you know, again, these are very personal decisions. So and massive decisions to be made. So I, I don't, you, you can't know for sure. But I, I think that this is a, a group that will have impact over the next three years, primarily. Um, and, and I think that. Uh, especially when you look at the, the three pitchers that they got at the at, at the top of the class that were all drafted. I mean, those are guys that um, BYU needs because you know, as we've talked about on the podcast in the spring, you know, they they play at an altitude that the rest of the West Coast Conference doesn't, and the WCC is a, a very pitching league, very pitching heavy league those guys, uh, out there, every school, it feels like has, has studs in the rotation and BYU, uh, you know, they need to find a way to compete with that. And, and I think that, uh, in guys like Cy Nielsen and Cutter Clawson and, and Tyson Heaney, they, they have some guys that, that are going to stack up really, really well, uh, on the weekends over the next few years.
1: Yeah. There were just a couple of other rapid fire thoughts too. I mean, it, it was, um, you see Arizona on this list and I think you know they, they, they made some some late strides in recruiting and they've been active in transfers and, and clearly it's um, you know Jay Johnson and his staff are kind of trying to get the uh, that ship headed back in, in the right direction. Obviously they things have not gone the last couple of years as, as they would have wanted so it kind of feels like maybe this is a catalyst for for getting that going. Um, Maryland is another another name that stands out there. Uh, that's a program that, that really needed kind of an injection of for lack of a better way of putting it juice. Um, certainly under John chef, they kind of had that thing rolling and, and it, they looked like a program that was really kind of poised. Uh, they've got some things working against it. Their facility is, is not where a lot of the rest of the big 10 is. So they, you know, they've got some uh, geography works against them in the big, from a big 10 perspective, cause they are so far away from most of the rest of the league. Uh, but they really did look like a program as recently as 2017 that you thought this could be the, if things break right, if they really kind of get this thing rolling, like it, they, they could be, you know, the class of the Big Ten and, and really be a program that kind of leads the Big Ten. I mean, they back to back. Now, one of them was when they were in the ACC, but back to back super regional appearances at a time when now I think we kind of take that stuff for granted because the Big Ten is where they are. And we just saw what Michigan did and what Minnesota did the year before. But that was at a time when that was a really big deal for the Big Ten. Uh, you know, we kind of had Indiana doing that. And, and, you know, Illinois had gotten there in 2015, but that was kind of a few and far between situation. So, um, you know, Maryland perhaps getting things going uh, back in the right direction with, uh, with Rob Vaughn. And then I guess the my, one of my last thoughts is, is on Ala- seeing Alabama's name here again. And they've been recruiting really well, as you noted, in the capsule under Brad Bohannon. And I, I guess the open question that I have about Alabama is how long is the tail on this thing? Because does that mean, you know, if you're in Alabama fan or alum does that mean you should kind of prep for regionals in 2020 in is the tail a little bit longer than that because the other thing you have to think about is yeah they're you know whatever they're ranked in the um in the rankings here but that gives them the let's see I'm, I'm pulling it up now so they are alabama is number 15 so top 15 class but i think if my math is correct here they're number eight in the sec um so there's there's like a sliding scale here where it's like great class objectively a great class a lot of talent In a vacuum, that puts you in a position to to be in regionals in in 2020, perhaps, and certainly 21 and 22, what have you. But if you're competing against teams that are stacking up talent faster than you, like how hard is that to catch up? I mean, that just just seems like that would be so frustrating. I mean, that's life in the SEC. This is nothing new for Brad Bohannon or anybody in the SEC, but that's what really makes it tough to figure out, like I said, how long is the tail on this where you you get that. For sure. And this this gets talked about a a lot.
0: We all believe that Brad Bohannon is going to get Alabama going, but the problem is to go up, someone has to come down. So who who is coming down? And and, and I, I guess that that kind of is 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 the one of the questions here is um, you know how how long can can that cycle last and, and all the rest of that. But um, you know I think when you look at this specific Alabama class. Um, there's a lot of upside, but there's also some risk here. And so I think that if uh, if Bo is right on these guys and they develop them right, um, it's going to end up being better than the fi- number 15 class. You look at Connor Prelip and Antoine Jean, two left-handers with a ton of projection, but also they weren't, Super like neither one of them was ranked in the BA 500, uh, which is by no means or or without flaw or any of the rest of that. That's not what I'm saying. But, um, you know, Jean came on very late, um, very late bloomer. And so it's going to be big for him to continue to develop. He's from Montreal. There, There are all sorts of reasons why he's a late bloomer. Uh, but they gotta they gotta keep getting him right and then you look at um, prelip he's from Wisconsin um, and he has great stuff uh, like really big time stuff and I, I think there's a lot of reason to be excited about him uh, but there's also like he he's now gonna have to go pitch under the lights in the SEC and you know, I, these are where he's coming from to that is, you know, it's, it's going to be a big jump and how do you adjust to that mentally? And and some of these questions are just unknowns. And then you look at, uh, you know, the, the biggest name in this class is Miles Austin, uh, shortstop from Atlanta, who has some Will Holland to him. Um, But, you know, Will Holland, was pretty raw as a freshman at Auburn, and Austin's more advanced than Holland was, uh, but you know that there, there's there's still a little bit of like, is this like truly an impact freshman, or is this a guy that's going to play and be okay, but like probably realistically be your like sixth, seventh, eighth best hitter, like I uh, you know so there's some development to be done in this group. So I I think that if I was looking at it just from on September 10, trying to forecast where Alabama is, what this class means for Alabama, I would say 2020, a 2020 regional would be ahead of schedule. Now, Brad Bohannon's been ahead of schedule before at Auburn with Butch Thompson, they they got ahead of schedule. Uh, So maybe this group, can get ahead of schedule at Alabama as well. But I would say 2020 is a, be much more competitive in the SEC, get out of the cellar in the SEC West uh, somehow, Um, you know, get to Hoover, uh, but probably not get to a regional. And then 2021, get to a regional. I I think that's the, the progression here for the Tide. But again, if a couple of these kids pop, earlier than expected, or if they just show up and are ready to do it, uh, you know, on the big stage, then, you know, the, that window advances. So it, that, that's de- definitely going to be an interesting uh, thing to watch. And, you know, the, the whole SEC West, of course, is continually reloading. Um, you got Mississippi State in the top 10. You got Auburn in the top 10. Uh, Ole Miss, uh, LSU. So, I mean, they're all there. And they all have a lot of talent, so it, it's a uh, it, it's a big time it's a big time ask, and, and they knew that going in. But it's uh, it's going to be fun to watch. Uh, it's going to be fun to watch all of these SEC West classes that that we're talking about here in the top fifteen. I mean, I, I think they're all they're all pretty exciting, and um, you know they're, they're they're they've got some uh, some big time talent headed to to that division yet again.
1: Yeah, the, one of the other things I, I noted too is we talked earlier in the um in the podcast about how Arizona state and, and Miami had been kind of compiling talent kind of building for, for some point in the future, which now seems to have arrived. And there's a couple teams in there that you mentioned in, in TCU's overview, for example, they've been really decimated by the draft and you, you've kind of seen that in the results on the field where, you know uh, you know, last year they got into a regional, but they were, realistically last team in and and you could make a real argument they shouldn't have been. And we probably made that argument on the podcast right after the the field was announced. So they clearly had taken a step back and and then UVA is kind of in a similar boat. And you you maybe wonder if these classes are a sign of maybe those two programs are kind of the next in line for this reboot uh, that ends up cresting at, you know, whether, whether it's 2020 or, or 21 or 22, but you wonder if maybe seeing them in that position, especially TCU with a top five class, you wonder if maybe that's those programs are kind of the next in line to kind of go through a similar I mean, that's version the hope, of what we're seeing with, with ASU. Um,
0: now I uh, I keep ranking TCU classes pretty well. So the uh, you yeah, know the, the group that's that's getting ready to be juniors that um, has taken some some attrition hits I was ranked pretty decently. I feel like, uh, you know, even though it was it was hammered pretty good coming out of the draft, I, you know, I thought there was some some big time talent in that. But I think that, that um, you know, first of all, clearly I got that wrong. Second of all, though, I, I think just the depth of this group is is going to be what, what kind of helps propel TCU back. And then Virginia's uh, Virginia is an interesting thing because they um, they they aren't going to go JC heavy typically there are two JC kids in this class and a transfer from the University of Chicago who didn't count to the rankings, but sounds super interesting. So there is some more experience in this Virginia class than than, uh, maybe they typically have. Usually they're almost uh, exclusively freshmen. So I think that can help uh, in in some immediate terms. And then, you know, Chris Newell is, uh, you know, kind of a I don't want to say big risk, bigger reward guy, but like there's a, there's a high ceiling. He just has some work to do to get there. Uh, and, you know, if uh, if he pops, you know, that's a that's a big time impact outfielder for, for this group. And uh, I, I'm going to be very interested as well just to see what these arms Virginia has added over the last two years. If you, if you go back to last year when they got Mike Vassell, who pulled out of the draft, had been a potential first rounder, uh, pulls his name out entirely and goes to Virginia and then uh, some of the arms they added this year Well, Carl Kuhn now is the head coach at Radford. So who's uh, who's a who's gonna be Virginia's pitching coach and then B? Uh, how does that impact the development of Virginia pitching uh, over the next few years is going to be very interesting to see and you know, Of course, Brian O'Connor has a lot to, to do with the pitch in there. Um, you know, that's his background as well so uh, they're they're going to be in good hands. I, I have no doubt at all. But uh, that that is a bit of an unknown right now. But I, I think that whoever it is is going to get some some great building blocks, uh, some great pieces of clay uh, to mold. And, and I, I think that yeah, the I do like what Virginia, you know, can be building towards. And I also, I mean they were bubbly much of the the season here. So it's not like they had an awful season that they showed some improvement from where they were in 18 and, you know, now in 20, they, I think that the expectation, I mean, the expectation of Virginia is of course to make a regional, but the, in 20, they have to be back in a regional. Um, I, I think that they have the pieces to, to go out and do that. And I think that this class is a part of that.
1: My, my last thought here is that uh, for some reason, you know, when we have, like, Eric Karros' kid, for example, in, in one of these classes, and um, that doesn't seem to really affect me on the whole, like, holy cow, Eric Karros is old enough to have a kid who's, for some reason, the big names don't really affect me in that way. Um, but for some reason, when I saw that Danny Ardois kid is enrolling <laughs> in Texas for some, I don't know why, like the more rank and file, the more rank and file big leaguers affect me more and just make me feel old. Like, I, I don't know why that is, but it, but it is seeing Eric Harris's name, nothing. Danny Ardois name. Suddenly I've got one foot in the grave and I, 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 can't explain uh, that I got nothing for you on that.
0: I um, I, I did, I'll be honest. I don't remember Silas's father as a big leaguer. Uh, I do remember Eric Harris as a big leaguer, but, uh, uh, Danny Artois is, uh, is not not a high one on my uh, my my, uh, my memory list, but that Texas group it is an interesting class as well. Um, you know they got uh, they, they got some some talent there, and they're going to need that talent to play. And I, I think that they they have some guys that can um, you know. Trey Faltine is one of the most versatile players in the country. They could literally do almost anything with him except ask him to catch probably. Um, They're going to try him out at shortstop first. He's never been just a shortstop. Um, But I think that's the plan for the fall is to to just have him play shortstop, see if he can win the job. Uh, And then if he doesn't, They'll they'll see what else uh, what else he can do, but he can get on the mound and pitch, if they want. Um, you know, he could he could run around the outfield if if that was where they wanted him, or anywhere on the infield. But uh, it, the the options are are almost limitless with him. But it makes for a very exciting package. And then uh, they have some uh, some guys transferring in, junior college wise, that that can make an impact and. Um, some of their freshmen last year was a very vaunted, uh, class as well. Uh, they were a little more ceiling than instant impact. And then I think this year's class is a little more on the, um, instant impact, they have ceiling, but this class is a little more uh, ready to go right now. And then, I, which, is, which is great, but also some of those ceiling kids from a year ago really t- made some important strides this summer. And so I think that the combination of those two classes, uh, I think the sophomores are ready to take a step forward. And I think the, this group of freshmen um, are in a lot of ways pretty ready to go uh, so I, I do feel like the horns are going to um, make a jump back. You can throw them into that uh, Virginia TCU bit of uh, you know kind of blue bloods that that are looking to to, to roll the rock back up after uh, you know kind of falling on it. Speaking of fall ball, uh, it has begun, and typically the places where it's begun uh, this early are uh, are more northern programs, but. Um, you know, over the next month, really, we're we're going to see uh, schools all across the country kicking off their fall balls. Um, and uh, Joe, you worked on uh, a, a piece for this month's uh, magazine issue about Eric Wedge getting ready to go at Wichita. Um, that's one of the more interesting coaching changes from the summer. Was Wichita State um, firing Todd Butler and bringing back. Um, maybe its greatest alum in in Eric Wedge uh, to be a first time head coach after being a big league manager, uh, and a pretty successful one. He was he was manager of the year uh, when he was with the Indians in two thousand and seven, uh, and now he's he's coming to the college game. So Joe, just from from working on that, what did uh, what did you take away from your reporting?
1: Yeah, he's certainly one of the more famous. I, I think it probably comes down to him or Joe Carter, I guess. If you're a more modern, you know, baseball fan, you might know Eric Wedge who's managing days, but people of a certain age, I suppose maybe would go Joe Carter, but yeah, he's certainly in that, in that discussion. Um, and what I, what I came away with there was that he, you know, he believes, um, in Wichita state's ability to be a national power again, to be, to be at the level it once was. Um, and if so, he wouldn't be there. That's kind of my takeaway there. Um, cause Eric Wedge doesn't need this, right? I mean, he, he, he's, he's managed in the big leagues. He interviewed for, managerial jobs as recently as a couple off seasons ago you know he, he he was working with the blue jays he from the discussion i had with him he really enjoyed what he was doing with the blue jays so it's not it's not as if he was on the hunt for whatever's necessarily next and he said this was the job for me he, he mentioned his introductory press conference i this wasn't that i was looking i'm paraphrasing but he, you know he wasn't looking for a college job it was wichita state and that was it um and so he really kind of believes in the program getting back to to where it was and so the open question of the piece and i, I won't spoil too much of it but i mean the, the open question is like is that possible in today's college baseball he he believes that to a certain degree that it is now i think he would probably say that you know it's going to be tough to get back to the, the heights that it, it once was because the game is just is just different now um, but i i certainly don't think it's a, a crazy thought i mean they, they do have things going for it the, the history helps for sure. Um, The support is there. There's, you know, a certain subset of people that with Wichita State not having football and and the basketball program has obviously uh, been on a really good run under Greg Marshall of late. Um, But the history of Wichita State baseball is really rich, not just in terms of the players and the, the wins and the championships, but also just in terms of local support. Um, the facility is good being upgraded. They're working on it. And I think the conference affiliation, I mean, they were in the Valley and, and now they're in the American. And I think in some years, maybe in 2018, was, this was the case where had they been in the Valley, they maybe make a regional um, because the, they, they would have maybe been able to uh, win more games in conference and wouldn't have had uh, just a conference record that was unpalatable from a, from a uh, at-large standpoint. But overall, I think if you're if you're talking about becoming the type of program that can not only get to regionals but get out of regionals and put yourself in a position to get to to Omaha, being in the American I think is is a net positive there because you're you're always going to have baked in quality games throughout the year, which is a big deal when you're in Kansas um, because you're you're obviously your midweek games are not going to necessarily be of a certain quality that you can get in the southeast or on the west coast, for example. So I think that is a net positive. There Now, obviously, there are challenges there, uh, more competition nationally. I mean, Wichita State came along at a time when um, they became a national power because Gene Stevenson kind of just spoke it into being. <laughs> I mean, he. I think it's really kind of an undertold story about just how how little he had to work with in the beginning at Wichita State and really started winning before he had all the raw materials you think he would have had to I have. Think really impre-
0: I, mean, had so, I think it's impressive. I mean, Eric Wedge um, in the story talks about being from Fort Wayne. And then he goes to Wichita, you know, like there's a lot more going on in the Midwest now than there was back then.
1: For sure. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, maybe Eric Wedge in 2019 as a kid goes to Indiana, Um, you know, uh, or or Purdue for that matter, you know, you just, so there's a lot more competition in, in the Midwest for sure. And, you know, uh, even nationally, I think there's just been a kind of a power consolidation. Um, you know, in some places where, you know, back in the '80s and '90s, there were major conference programs that weren't all that committed to baseball. Now that's not really the case. Everybody who's playing in the in the in the big leagues, to to use that term colloquially, is committed to baseball and wants to win and is putting resources behind it to varying degrees, of course. So, um, and the weather's never going to change. The accent, unless unless Wichita, Kansas becomes beachfront property and the country splits in half. Um, They're probably not ever going to have access to the high end talent that you have on the coast. That's just a fact of life. Um, And those advantages they have in the eighties and nineties, they were one of the programs that played 75, 80 games a season Um, that you can't do that anymore. And that was an advantage. You could, you could sell that to kids if you want to play a whole bunch of games and really play all year. uh, That's what we're doing here. We're going to play anybody, anywhere, anytime. And the scheduling limit being what it is and, you know, restrictions on how many days of school kids can miss, which are, which are positives. I'm not suggesting those are bad. It's just different. And so some of those advantages they had in the days when Gene Stevenson was building a program just don't exist in the same way they do uh, to, or they don't exist like they did then. So um, I, I'm interested to see how it goes. Um, I'm certainly there. There is an energy there. There is a, a palpable energy. Um, you know, season ticket sales are up, uh, you know, uh, Eric Woods talked about just seeing people out around town and I think coaches will um you know will often talk about that and people greeting them in restaurants and out around town but but you can see how it would be different in a place like Wichita with his history with that program so now it's just going to be a matter of channeling that energy and turning the Shockers into a winner um and it is not going to be easy um but certainly like so I said Wichita definitely rose
0: higher it. than Nebraska ever did uh they have the national title Nebraska doesn't But those are two programs from generally the same part of the country that haven't been at those heights for more than a decade now, uh, but whose fans desperately want those days back. Um, Like, Husker fans really care, and Wichita State fans really care. So, like, they both have that going for them. Um, Which one do you think has the better chance of of kind of they both have new coaches this year will bolt's coming in at nebraska eric wedge going back to back to his alma mater uh, i guess will bolt's going back to his alma mater as well um, which one do you think kind of gets back to that level or at least breaks through to to a super regional uh first
1: that's a really good question i, I guess nebraska would be my answer i feel like they're starting from a First of all, to kind of game the question, because I know this is not the spirit of the question you're yeah. asking. But they're starting from a better place, right? I mean, to, to use, I mean, they're starting on first or second base as opposed to a standing at home plate. So, but again, that, I know that's not really the spirit of the question you're asking. But, but I also think that the Big Ten is what it is, such that I think Nebraska is able to. There's no limitations on what you can do from the Big Ten to the extent there were before. But I think perception is 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 important. And that perception matters. And so I, I think there's no more limitation on what they can do from that league. I think Nebraska's brand is really pervasive. I can speak to it living in the Midwest and living in a part of the Midwest. It's not that close to Nebraska. I mean, it takes me, you know, five and a half, six hours to get to Omaha every year. Um, so I'm not that close, but I see Nebraska people all over the place. It's just a really pervasive brand in the Midwest. Uh, I think there's always going to be a pull to a school like Nebraska to Wichita State just because of, not having football, it's not as, as big a school, as big a brand. I think they're always going to have some of those natural advantages. Um, it is also the big school in that state. If you're a kid growing up in Nebraska, that's probably where you wanted to go to play your sports, what, no matter what sport it was. Um, at Nebraska, basketball may be a little different there, but especially, you know, particularly football and baseball, you probably wanted to play them at Nebraska. And, and in, in Kansas, um, Wichita State's the big baseball brand there, but KU and Kansas State are just bigger are just bigger brands in general. So I'm probably going to go Nebraska. um, But guys, that's a, that's an interesting question because I think there are some advantages to Wichita state as well. Um, One of them being just conference affiliation uh, being such that they're going to get, I think there's less variability in the quality of the games they're going to get year to year. Whereas in the big 10, I think there are going to be some years in the big 10 that are a little leaner. um, Whereas with the American I think last year was one of their leaner years, and it was still a really quality conference. I think there's a little bit more to bet on there. So, Wichita State's not without its uh, things I, going forward. I would also like the, the,
0: the the, if, if the, the standard that I just p- plucked out of the air is just to break through to a super. Like, yeah, I think Nebraska is clearly the the advantage there. Um, but if we if we made it a little bigger, like the fact that. Wichita's administration has to be as dedicated to baseball as they are um, because that's what the fans want, and there's no football. Um, That's a big advantage, too, because, uh, you know, Nebraska is also trying to return to football glory days, and I'm Sure that that takes a lot more of their time and resources and effort, and that the fan base wants that one a little more. And you know, so they've got to they got to be pouring a lot into what Scott Frost is doing. Uh, I'm sure Will Bold is getting plenty of support, but you know, there's I, I would guess that that Wedge can get um, you know maybe a greater share of the the Wichita State pie of attention, money, whatever. Uh, just because there is no big football um, thing to, to there, there's no big football project to be worked on as well. So, I don't know. That that's uh, that's going to be interesting to monitor those two programs going forward. And you know, there were more than 30 coaching changes around the country this year. A lot of really interesting ones from Oregon State and Oregon, USC, Florida State, Wichita, Nebraska. Um, bryant on a mid-major level and um there is still one coaching job still open uh western illinois we'll uh we'll see when they uh when they fill that ryan brownley uh moved to the abca where he replaced uh jeremy sheets uh who got back into coaching i believe at the naia level in uh in georgia so uh the carousel is actually not shut down yet even as we are uh near in the middle of september uh but we'll uh we'll continue to monitor that as uh, as we go um now we we all know how much joe loves pop culture uh i also enjoy pop culture uh but joe wanted to, us to touch on a couple of the uh the summer pop culture stuff that we missed and so joe you uh we, we we've got this uh this behemoth Old Town Road, which you called being a behemoth very early on, I must add. Uh, you can guys can go back to listen to some episode in March, April, I don't know. Um, <laughs> whenever it first yeah, thank dropped you. Thank you. Uh, the second yes. time, Joe was, Joe was on top of that. Uh, and then, then we have Lizzo, uh, who came on late in the summer. And, and where, where do you stand on that debate, Joe? Well,
1: yeah, it's, it's uh, really impressive. Old Town Road's... Um longevity because I actually remember that was the first week of April. Uh, not because I have some sort of like, you know, uh, a beautiful mind type memory for things like that. But, um, but I remember because the weekend after we recorded that podcast or what what have maybe it was after that. I, but anyway, it was the first week in April because that weekend I was at a series at Illinois, Maryland was playing at Illinois. And I, I just remember that series being the first weekend in April and they played that song in between innings and it had hit the internet like 48 hours earlier so they got a quick turnaround on it and they played it and the crowd at illinois field applauded they applauded the sound guy playing a song which i don't think i've ever except for fight songs obviously i don't think i've ever for just a generic pop song or what have you i don't i don't know that i've ever seen an audience or a crowd applaud what was being played so that's that's kind of how i knew that it was this was a little bit different so um but Lizzo has come on strong. I heard about Lizzo. Friends of mine, I went on. I went down to Texas a few. Uh, I guess it's been a couple months now uh, to see some friends, and, and they were really into Lizzo. A little bit ahead of the curve. Uh, Lizzo's from Houston. She has Houston roots anyway. She went to the University of Houston, studied um, studied flute actually. She was like a classical music uh, major. Um, so actually, really talented musician. Um so I have to applaud Old Town Road for longevity. I think that's where I go. I mean, that's still, I think, the song of the summer and was the song of really the, the late spring, frankly. Um but Lizzo has come on strong and has been kind of just a powerhouse in terms of um, you know, I think even casual music fans who maybe um wouldn't listen to hip hop as a genre have um have caught on to her and kind of enjoy her music. So, um certainly it has been a Tour de Force performance for her late in the summer, but I just don't think there's any Dethroning Old Town Road in terms of um, you know yeah of
0: absolutely I mean it took what or... Taylor Swift to dethrone that so like that's 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 kind of where where that's at so yeah um right. you know I, I think you sum that one up beautifully um and just uh, I mean eventually I, I'm sure that we'll get another Old Town Road remix as well and he can't possibly be done yet so hopefully oh, yeah. um, we've uh, we've gone kind of caught up. On college baseball here, um, over the last uh, last couple months, um, we will going forward trying to be back on a regular weekly schedule. Uh, hopefully, Joe and I will also uh, be able to add some guests to the mix as we go through the fall. Hear about um, some of the the goings on around the country um, as uh, as programs really get back into it and. And start playing some of these games. Um, we do, of course, have uh, the fall exhibition slate, two games uh, for each team uh, that don't count to the, the 56 game max. And those will be starting up here in the next couple weeks. Uh, you know, I just saw that um, Michigan and Vanderbilt made it official and they'll be playing this fall. Uh, so that's a fun matchup. I, I think that people might remember the last time those two teams played. Um, and then you know the other uh, you know big highlight uh, so far that I've seen is uh, Florida and Georgia playing the night before the world's largest outdoor cocktail party in Jacksonville, um, and that of course being the, the Florida Georgia football game. I don't actually know what they're calling it now because they're not calling it that, but that's that's that rivalry's name. I don't care what uh, they're they're trying to to pass off. Uh, the, the that rivalry is um, but those two teams going to go at it which is you know just just great I, I think there'll be great crowds in Jacksonville on that Friday night uh, with all the, the the fans of those two schools already in town uh, to see the football game the next day so we'll have plenty to discuss over the next few months here of the fall uh, so remember to subscribe to the Baseball America College podcast uh, on your favorite podcasting app, uh, we're available pretty much wherever you, wherever you look. You can also find us uh, on the newly launched Baseball America app, uh, which is available for both iPhone and Android. Uh, so you can check that out in uh, the iTunes store, uh, whatever they call that now. I don't have an iPhone or <laughs> Google Play. Uh, make sure to download that and uh, you, can, uh, you can get your podcasts. Uh, you can find them there as well. And while you're, uh, while you're there, make sure to subscribe, rate, review if you can. Uh, it helps other people to find us and uh, to, to enjoy the, the, the podcast as well. Um, so yeah, make sure to, uh, to, to do all of that if you can. If you can't, just remember to go to BaseballAmerica.com uh, and all of the content uh, will be there for you. And again, I mentioned this at the top of the show, Head of the Class, uh, Baseball America's new college book this fall, uh, examining the last 40 years of college baseball history. If you've made it this far in a college baseball podcast, I really think you're going to enjoy uh, that book and just looking back at, at the last 40 years, the great players, the great teams, uh, all of the great stories uh, that that go into Uh, the last 40 years of college baseball, and um, you can pre-order that at BaseballAmerica.com. So until next week, uh, thank you for listening. I've been Teddy Cahill, and thanks to Joe for joining me.